one of my greatest joys in being a pastor is seeing people begin to follow Jesus. There is absolutely nothing like it. One of my great heartbreaks being a pastor is seeing people walk away from Jesus. I wish I could stand up here and tell you that we've only had two people ever do that in my life in ministry, but that is certainly not the case. Many people that I started following Jesus with are no longer. This last week, um, I was a bit nostalgic, and I was going through some old photos um, of ministry in general, but particularly even the church. And as I was going through those photos, I saw pictures of people whom I've shared life with, shared meals with, worshipped with, prayed with, cried with, that walked away. Some deconstructed. Some got deeply discouraged. And some others just got distracted. Whatever the reason was, they all walked away. Now, when I read a passage like this, these are the people who come to mind. It brings to mind the words of Jesus later in Matthew's gospel where he says this, the love of most will grow cold. Now, granted, this could just be an episode in the story of their lives, and my prayer is that they would all eventually return. But this begs the question, why do people walk away from Jesus? As a community, we've been in a series entitled Pilgrims and Strangers, an anthology for seekers, skeptics, and saints. And over the last several weeks, we've been working our way through passage after passage, looking and examining Jesus' heart for those he calls lost. We looked at characters like Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, the parable of the lost sons, the woman at the well, and the Samaritans. And I've been doing my very best to build a case. Jesus loves the lost. Today, I want to shift our conversation a bit to those who specifically walk away. And I want to work our way through Jesus's, one of Jesus' most famous parables that has a few names. Some of you know this as the parable of the sower. Some of you know this as the parable of the soils or the parable of the seeds. But here in this story, we step into a question, and this is it. Why do people walk away? Now, before we explore this parable and that question, we need to establish some groundwork. First, we must understand that as human beings, we live from the heart. We like to think of ourselves as purely logical beings, right? That when we make decisions or we do things, it's purely out of logic and reason. We look at the facts, we look at the figures, we make the best educated decision on what is to do X, Y, or Z. That sounds nice, but that is not what the reality is. Most of the decisions you make, a staggering percentage of the decisions you make are out of habit or feeling. The, the habits, the things that you've already prepared for yourself or just spur of the moment feelings. Think about your own life for just a moment. If you were purely a logical being, you would have eaten healthy all week long, you would not have spent money on things you do not need. You would not have binge-watched your favorite show or pay for overpriced coffee or doom-scroll through news stories or you fill in the blank. If you were purely logical, none of that would have happened. You would have, like, learned French by now. You would have, like, been on your Peloton half the time, right? You would have done something else. You are not a brain on a stick. You're not a purely logical being. Uh, one neuroscientist said it this way, we are not necessarily thinking machines, we are feeling machines that think. We live from the heart. Now obviously, this language of living from the heart is not literal, though without your heart, you're a goner, <laughs> right? But it is a metaphor of saying the central part of our being. 
The biblical authors and Jesus love to use this imagery to talk about the actual place that we live from. One scholar says it this way, when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether Old Testament or new, it is not speaking of our emotional life only, but of the central animating center of all we do. It is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart, in biblical terms, is not part of who we are, but the center of who we are. Our heart is what defines and directs us. We live from the heart, but our understanding of our heart is foggy at best. Dallas Willard says this, we live from our depths, most of which we do not understand. The heart system rarely goes as it is directed and never perfectly so. Many factors are always at work in the decisions and actions that actually occur. The individual is often divided into incoherent fragments. We are always this mixed bag of fragmented thoughts, emotions, convictions, and ideas. Our hearts are constantly pulling us in all sorts of different directions. And this is why we need parables. You see, human beings are storied people, meaning what penetrates the human hearts is not facts or figures or logic, but it's stories. This is why, for all of human history, what moves the human story forward are stories, movies, art, poetry, music, films. It's all storytelling. And Jesus knows this. And so when Jesus comes as a teacher, his most common tool he uses is parables or stories. Because stories have a way of bypassing all of our intellectual interruptions and penetrate deep into the heart. Now what is interesting about the stories that Jesus tells is they're not very long. You can read a parable of Jesus in just a couple of minutes. There's only a few characters, a couple of scenes, a couple of moments in the story, and then it passes. However, these stories have a way of sticking in your mind, so you spend time thinking about them. Even today, this parable that we're going to talk about today is probably one of Jesus' most famous parables. Now, the point of parables is not that they're just a quick moral story, like here's a story of, of why to do the right thing. But in fact, they're an invitation to listen, to listen from the heart. For example, our parable today was one of Vincent van Gogh's favorite stories. Um, Vincent van Gogh, famously known for his painting Starry Night, also for lopping off his ear, so there's that. But uh, one of his lesser known paintings is this one. It's called The Sower at Sunset. Now, What's interesting about Van Gogh and this parable is he did 30 works of art on this parable alone. Something resonated deep within his soul with this story. The point of parables is that they are something you spend your life thinking about. In another, another reality of why Jesus tells stories is because they both conceal and reveal. So in the story, Jesus tells this parable. And notice what his disciples tell him after he shares this story. Verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Through, though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, 
they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn, and I would heal them. Jesus speaks in parables on purpose. Now, there's a lot to say about this text here, but I just want to cover some highlights. Jesus is saying here that when he teaches in parables, it is to reveal the kingdom, but not just reveal the kingdom. When Jesus teaches in parables, it actually reveals the listener's heart. And here's how. For those who've already made up their minds about Jesus, he's a loony bin, he's some crazy homeless rabbi. When they hear the stories of Jesus, they sound like cute little stories about seeds and farmers and soils. Thanks so much for sharing that little cute story with us. But for those who are actually listening, actually hearing what Jesus is saying, these parables are keys that unlock the reality of the kingdom. To put it simply, to those who don't listen, the parable of the message, uh, the parables conceal the message of the kingdom. To those who do listen, the parables reveal the message of the kingdom. We find Jesus frustrating in the modern age, and it's okay that you're honest with that, right? I think about uh, like the famous leadership guru lady Brene Brown. She has this line: "To be clear is to be kind." That you could put on a hoodie put it on a pillow, whatever. That sounds so nice. Jesus doesn't care about that, right? It's like our ethic is to be clear, is to be kind. Jesus is like, I'm not really interested in that. You see, because Jesus does not share in our modern value, clarity is not the priority of Jesus. Hunger is. Jesus is looking for those who are looking for him. And Jesus is speaking to those who are actually listening. What's cool is that um, in this moment, the text opens up saying that Jesus steps onto a boat and they kind of push him out into a lake. So all this crowd is gathered to come and hear Jesus. And if you're his disciple, you're like, this is the time, Jesus, where we like lay out the plan. Step one, step two, step three, right? What's cool about um, pushing out into the water is that the water functions as a natural amphitheater. So, like, if you ever go to the lake or something like that and you were to shout on the water, it would carry much farther because the, way, the water functions as an amphitheater. And so Jesus makes this impromptu amphitheater. And she's like, Jesus, this is the time to be clear, to lay out the kingdom, to let everybody know. And Jesus opens his mouth and he's like, there's a farmer who uh, has a plot of land, right? And he tells a story about seeds. And then he's like, all right, let's go home rolls the back in and people leave and his disciples are like why do you do that jesus like every time you have this beautiful opportunity and then you tell this cryptic riddle that we're supposed to figure out and everybody leaves disappointed why do you do that and jesus tells them the people who want to see will see the people who want to hear will hear those who have already made up their minds think i'm foolish it's an invitation to listen jesus also knows that human beings are terrible at listening, right? This is something that we kind of know. We're really good at talking. We're super good at giving our opinions, not so hot at listening. Listening is truly a lost art in the modern age. You know this because you experience it all the time, what it's like when other people don't listen. You see them scrolling on their phone while you're talking. You see their eyes glaze over and begin to daydream and you're in the middle of a story. Or you can tell that they're not really listening. They're just waiting to respond. Now, it's easy to be like, yeah, people are the worst, except you do that too. Right? You may even have not been listening all this time and have just come back because you realize something's just happened and I missed it. Hi, we missed you. Right? We are terrible at listening, and I speak as also somebody trying to grow in listening. Jesus knows we're terrible at listening, so he speaks in these odd stories to get us to be quiet for a moment. Uh, one scholar says this, parables, they are meant to pop every circuit breaker in people's mind. All of our yammer and opinions about how God should or shouldn't run the world. Getting people to just stand there, eyes wide open, and their mouths shut would be a giant step forward. 
This is what Jesus' parables are designed to do. Everybody is expecting this rabbi, this leader, this movement starter to give his campaign speech, to rally the troops, to storm the hill, to say, this is the movement we're leading. But instead, Jesus is like, let me tell you about a story, right? And goes this completely other direction. And the people are left, why did he say that? What does that even mean? Seeds and soil and why are we talking about farming right now? There's the Jewish leaders are corrupt and Rome is knocking on the door and this guy's talking about seeds. Exactly. It is an invitation to listen. Now what I want to do is I want us just to read this parable together. And if you would just join me in just closing your eyes as just a way to remove distractions and just hearing the parable with the invitation of Jesus to listen. The question before us today, brothers and sisters, is this. Are you listening? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that they got into the boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. The birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still others fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what is sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, now that we did that, have a good day. Thanks for joining us at Zion. I appreciate you coming. We have a little bit of time, so I guess we can talk about the parable. But in the parable... We have a farmer, seeds, and four types of soil. In this parable, God is the farmer or the one who sows. The seed is the message of the kingdom. And we are one of the four kinds of soil. The invitation from Jesus is to ask the question, what kind of soil am I? Now, the first thing I want to highlight quickly is about the farmer. The first thing I want to highlight is it seems that the farmer is kind of reckless, right? It kind of seems like a bad farmer, if we're totally honest. Now, I have a black thumb, so if you want to plant dead, call your boy. I got you, right? I will plant sit for you and kill that thing at record pace. So if you need it, hit your boy up. But I think this is terrible sowing strategy. Okay, if there's like a bunch of weeds... I'm not going to throw our tomato plants into the bunch of weeds. If there's, like, soil I know that's bad and rocky underneath, I'm not going to throw seeds into that area. And I'm not going to throw seeds onto the pavement in front of my house being like, come on, baby, right? It seems a little reckless that Jesus would do this. Or maybe a little prodigal that Jesus would do this. God is so generous, he will sow seeds anywhere. God is generous with the message of the kingdom. He will even tell it to hearts he knows are hard. He is a generous farmer. This parable is not about him. The other thing is the seed. Seeds are rather unassuming if you think about it. And often the kingdom comes as a seed. Now, there's so much to talk about this metaphor. It is one of Jesus' best metaphors about the kingdom. We don't have time to get into all the things that metaphor means. But here's all I want to call out today. A seed can be easily missed. Um, at our house, though I have a black thumb, we have this uh, tree that sprung up out of nowhere one day. And it kind of just grew at exponential pace. So despite my black thumb, it's resilient. But, like, one day, it just looked like this little thing, and I felt like we came out, like, two weeks later, and it is, like, this massive thing. Now it's, like, connecting with me and my neighbor's wall. It's a nightmare. I'm just venting at this point. But I say that to say 
It happened quickly, without us even noticing, without us even paying attention, what was once a seed became a tree quickly. And that's the nature of how seeds work. You see, within a seed is the power of potential. Think about it this way. A single apple seed has the potential for an orchard. One tree grows, produces more apples, which produce more seeds, which produce more trees, which produce an orchard. You know this if you have weeds in your yard, right? What begins as one small weed becomes an infestation as time goes on and you allow it to continue. Seeds are small and unassuming, but they contain potential in them. What begins as unassuming and small in the right soil becomes mighty. And this is what the kingdom is like. However, this parable is not about the seeds. This parable is about the, so, uh, the soils. And the first soil we're going to look at is the hard soil or the hard heart. Jesus says this, explaining the parable. Listen, then, to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The, image, the imagery Jesus uses here is of a path or of a road. The idea is it's dirt so hardly compacted, it would take immense effort to break up that ground. And because the ground is so hard, the seed cannot get in. So if the soil is a metaphor for the heart, it begs the question, what is a hard heart? Well, see, the first step towards a hard heart is an unwillingness to respond to God. It is a continual rejection or ignoring of the invitations of God to you. And then what happens is over time, your unwillingness to respond becomes an inability to respond. You so harden your heart towards God that you are no longer able to hear his voice. At a certain point, your heart becomes so hard, you can no longer hear the invitations. In a word, a hard heart looks like apathy. It looks like just not caring anymore. Now, I think one mistake we can make is confusing a hard heart with a hurt one. I know that as we're talking about the soil of a hard heart, the Spirit might be bringing to mind people you know, who you're worried about, is their heart hard? Now, to offer one level of encouragement, when I meet with people who don't follow Jesus and they're angry at him, I realize their heart is still soft. Because to have anger towards a God you may or may not think exists is a door wide open because you still care enough to be angry. Where it's really challenging is where they just don't care either way and, like, truly don't care either way. And so when a heart truly becomes hard, it's just apathetic. Now, here's something important to understand. A heart never begins hard. It grows that way over time. And so how does a heart become hardened? All of you are dying to know. First, it is trampled by other things. In the parable, what is supposed to be a soil for seed becomes a path for travel. In this metaphor, the heart is used as a highway for other things. The heart is not being used for what it was made for. In short, when we give our hearts to anything other than God, we get trampled. The biblical authors call this idolatry. It's when we put anything else in the place of God, we get crushed by it. Whatever that thing might be, it may be a career, a relationship, a dream, whatever, over time, it crushes us. And here's the hard lesson you learn. It is entirely possible to get everything you want and still be devastated. 
It's entirely possible to get the dream relationship, to get the dream career, to get the dream house and the dream car and the dream life and still be miserably unhappy. Because to quote Augustine, our souls are restless until they find our rest in him. You are filling your heart with things it was not made for. And over time, that hardens the heart. With every letdown, with every disappointment, the heart becomes harder and harder. And even in this process of the hardening of the heart, there are invitations from God to let the seed of the kingdom in. But too often, we are busy numbing ourselves. You see, there may be some of you here who feel that your heart has begun to harden towards God. And even now, the Spirit is inviting you to hear His Word and to soften His heart. And there be moments and times and place where suddenly you awaken to the fact that you are unhappy, that the way that you're living is not working, that the anxiety and the fear and the, and the, and the kind of hopelessness begins to rise up in you, and you start to feel that welling to the surface. And as you do, you just hop on Instagram. You just turn on your comfort TV show, The Office, or Seinfeld, or Friends. You quickly text your friends, what are you doing? Let's hang out. You make your way into the kitchen, pour yourself a big glass of wine, and sit back on the couch and say, I'm not going to worry about it. You run towards the pantry and make yourself the best ice cream sundae you could possibly imagine to eat, to drown, to numb away the angst of the soul. These are invitations to listen to realize that that which you're putting your trust in is trampling you, and you need something else. The next thing we must understand about the parable is Jesus says that the enemy comes away to take the seed. This is the last thing Jesus says about the seed, is that since there's nowhere for the seed to go, the birds come and take it, and the bird is a metaphor for the evil one. We must realize that there's not only two parties involved, our hearts and the word, but there's an enemy who looks to take away the seed. This uh, language of snatching isn't just like, oh, no one's using this. I guess I'll pick it up. It's a violently taking away. I want to, have, has anyone ever seen like pigeons or birds eat? They don't come in like gently. They just, <laughs> right? They go and they snatch that thing and take it away quickly. This is the imagery that Jesus wants to take, wants us to have. One commentator commenting on this, Daryl Brock, says this, when God speaks to humanity, a cosmic battle breaks out. I think that often this taking away, this robbing of the enemy, looks like taking away the opportunity to reflect on God by any means necessary. It will, the enemy will come and take away the seed by just flooding your life with all sorts of things to keep you distracted, content, comfortable, not thinking about the deep things of the soul. He will use deceptive ideas, distraction, whatever he can to get the individual to not deeply consider the invitation of God. Now, I do feel a sense of heaviness about all of this, and here's what I want to remind you. Though a heart may be hard, it doesn't mean it's beyond repair. John Phillips says this, soil can usually be improved. No sower scatters seed on soil that has not been plowed and harrowed. Hard hearts can be softened. False beliefs can be uprooted. God's kindness shows him how to break up the soil of the human soul. Or in the words of Jesus, what seems impossible to man is possible with God. And so as you're thinking about people, or maybe even yourself, whose hard, heart may feel hard, listen, there is no soil which God cannot break up. If they would just say, come, Lord, speak. I open my heart to you. Now, God is so incredibly kind that even the hardest heart he can soften if they were to open up their lives to him. My mind draws me to the story of the thieves on the cross. 
the gospel authors tell us that in the beginning, both of the people being crucified with Jesus mock him too. If you're the son of God, pull yourself down from here. But something happens. One thief listens to what Jesus says. Things like when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And just before one of the thieves breathes his last breath, he turns to Jesus and he says this, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus tells him, surely I say unto you, today you will be in paradise with me. Even a hard heart on the cross becomes soft when compelled by the life of Jesus. And so for those you know who may be far away, the Lord can soften their heart. That's the hard heart. I want to talk about the second soil, which is the shallow heart. Jesus says this, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they, only la- they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now, of the four soils, the hard, the hard soil is the one that easily kind of gets dismissed. The other three all begin the same. The seed, takes, the seed goes into the soil, and all of them begin to show fruit, but not all of them stand the test of time. And so what exactly is the shallow heart? Well, Jesus uses the metaphor of rocky ground. What I don't want you to think of is like casting seed in gravel. What I want you to think of is like a small layer of good soil, but underneath that is hard rock, right? We kind of have this in some areas in New Mexico. Where? Ask somebody else. But we have it here somewhere, right? And so um, it's, it's, it doesn't provide the ability for roots or depth to happen. And this is what Jesus is on about. So what is a shallow heart? A shallow heart is a heart that lacks depth and a heart that lacks roots. Let's talk about lacking depth first. This person who has a shallow heart is often only looking at things on the horizon of their own concern. They do not have depth because they do not open themselves up to the lives of other people. The idea here is that their response is rooted merely in feelings and in personal profit from things, not in something far more substantial. Now, I want to be clear. Emotions aren't bad, um, but they, they get troublesome when they're ultimate. And emotions can often leave us talked, tossed back and forth by however we are feeling about something. And so what Jesus is on about here is this is all an inward experience and nothing beyond that. This is a heart that lacks depth. I think that in our modern age, we are setting ourselves up to have hearts that lack depth, right? I want you to think about your daily experience with a smartphone in your pocket, right? You open up your phone, and it's like, cool cat video. All right, next thing, Israel just got attacked. All right, next thing, coronavirus cases are on the rise. All right, next thing, U.S. wins the World Cup. Next thing, right? And it's just this infiltration of information. And we treat all of it as the same. All of it is just news. When was the last time your heart actually broke over a story? You're trained to hear information as just business as usual, not put yourself in places of pain. And that leads to a shallow heart. You are taught that everything only exists within the horizon of your own concern. If it happens to you or to somebody you love, then yeah, sure, everything should break. But anything outside of that horizon is just somebody else's problem. This is how we build a shallow heart. The next is we lack roots. The seed fails because it lacks roots, a system, an infrastructure that holds something in place. Jesus says here that what exposes this is trials, hard times. Your root system doesn't seem super important when everything is going awesome. You know, when everything is good and everything is going your way and the girl likes you and the gym is going well and you just got a promotion, it's like root system, like who cares? We're springing up quickly. Things are going great until 
They aren't any longer. Heat comes, wind comes, difficulties come, and there's no root system that can sustain your life. And what most people are finding is the secular story never provides answers for suffering. I know a lot of people who don't follow Jesus, and their number one objection is this. How could I believe in a God that would allow bad things to happen? And it's an honest and good and important question. We will not be addressing the problem of evil today. We will at some point. But here's what I want to say. Okay, God doesn't exist. You know, it's just all happen chance. Now what? Do you have a better answer? Is there more meaning to suffering now? Or, or is there still something that aches in you that longs for goodness, that longs for restoration? And it is only the Christian story that gives a promise that all things that are broken will be made new one day. It is only the Christian story that has a God who weeps with you, who suffers with you, who stares evil in the face and endures it with you, and who gives you the promise that one day he will overcome all evil. It is only the Christian story that gives that kind of hope. Our hearts become shallow because we lack roots. And so, how does this process unfold? Well, it looks like sometimes when things don't go our way. Right? You started to follow Jesus. And to be fair, some of this is bad marketing on the Christian church's side. Right? Follow Jesus and everything will get better. The only problem with that is what Jesus said. We love the promises of God, right? I will be with you and never forsake you. Like, right? We're like, yes, all these things. You want to else is a promise of Jesus? In this world, you will have trouble. That's not on a coffee cup, right? That's not on an, an influencer isn't doing that as their devotional for the day. That is surely a promise of Jesus. He says, the, the student is not greater than the master. Because I suffer, you will suffer too. Where is that on the pamphlet? Where is that when we signed up for this, right? So part of that is the failure of the Christian church. But also, we treat God as a means to an end. We just want a good life, and we think God will get us there. What we don't realize is that God is the end. A good life means life with him, period. And so when things don't go our way, what do we do? We begin to pull back things in our life. Well, God, I didn't think I'd still be single now, so I'll just take this from your hand. Thank you very much. And I'll take dating into my circle. You can handle, like, the cosmic things in the world and my salvation. But dating, I got this, Lord. Your plate is full, right? It's my career, right? God, you're so busy with everything else. I'll just, you know, I'll take care of my career. You can do all the other really important things, right? When things don't go our way, we begin to pull back control. Thing, moment, situation, circumstance, thing after thing after thing, we begin to pull it all back until before you know it, God has nothing left and we have everything and we think that we are in control and we have become our own God. Happens short, slowly over time. And so, how do you get out of a shallow heart? You ready? Wrestle with God. You bring it to him. You wrestle it out with him. Tyler Staten has this great line. I don't have it up here, but it says this. When you wrestle with God and lose, you win. When you wrestle with God and lose, you win. Most people don't have the depth of heart to wrestle with God. And this is our heritage of faith. Find me one biblical character who didn't wrestle with God, right? Find me one biblical character who is like, where are you? What are you doing? What's happening? Why didn't this work? I'm actually kind of mad at you right now. Wrestled with him. God honored that. And God is not surprised by your disappointment or your indifference or your doubt. He's not like, oh, them? Me? Of course not. He knows every fiber of your being. His invitation is wrestle with me. This is the biblical practice of lament. It's bringing our pain before God and saying, where are you? What are you doing? And God can do something with a heart like that. He could do something with a heart that's responsive. I'm running out of time here. Next one, crowded heart. The seeds falling on the thorns refer to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. 
making it unfruitful. What is a crowded heart? A crowded heart is a heart cluttered with all kinds of other things. It doesn't mean these things are necessarily bad, but they choke out the life that's meant to be lived. If there's a word for the modern church, it's this one. In my following of Jesus, there's only been a handful who have deconstructed, a handful who have got super discouraged about life's trouble, but by and large, most of them all have a crowded heart. Their life just gets filled with all sorts of other things, and before they know it, the word is choked out. God becomes on the back burner. Jesus says, two things lead to a cluttered heart, worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth. First, worries of this life. What makes you worried? Is it questions like, what if I end up alone? Is it questions like, what if I'm not enough? Is it questions like, what if my plans fall through? Or does it sound like, what if I'm missing out? It is the worries of this life that lead us away from Jesus and begin to crowd our hearts from being able to hear the word. Not all of these things are bad things, but it's when we begin to take them in our own possession and control and begin to not trust that weeds begin to grow in our heart. We need to take matters into our own hands, define good and evil on our own terms, and before you know it, our lives are crowded because we're constantly anxious, scrambling, trying to make something of our lives rather than trusting in the words of Jesus. The next thing is the deceitfulness of wealth. There are a lot of lies that money tells, but here's two I want to talk about. First, the lie that money tells is that wealth will bring you satisfaction. That wealth will bring you satisfaction. That if I just had X, then guys, life would be the best, right? If I just made just the next tier, you know, this tier's good, and we could put the next, that's really, you know, then I would give more and do more and be available if I made more. That's not the case, because there's always more. There's always the next thing. And ask anybody who's wealthy if that's brought any more satisfaction in their life. You can't buy a heart at peace. You can't. Money may give you power, but it will never give you peace. The next lie that we believe is that money brings security. Right, that if I just have money, then I can just control things in my life. Then I don't have to worry about this, that, or whatever. But when you put your trust in money, it always sends you scrambling. It always sends you for the next portfolio, the next divestment, the next this, the next that, you know, to, to cross all these T's and dot all these I's. And Jesus tells a parable about a man who's planning and he's got this massive harvest. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to build an even bigger barn. And the Lord of the Lord comes to him and says, you fool. Don't you realize that tonight you will lose your life? What would you exchange for more time? All the money in the world. All the money in the world. It doesn't bring a sense of security. Quickly, this is a reason we say this every Sunday. That our hearts would not be choked out by the deceitfulness of wealth. When we call our community to be a community of generosity, we are embodying a response to God saying, money will not control my life, so I freely give it away. The last heart, and this is where we'll close, is the responsive heart. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what is sown. What I don't want you to hear me saying today is that a good soil, a good heart, is one that's morally upright. Morals matter to Jesus, but according to Jesus, what makes a good soil is its responsiveness, its readiness for the seed. That's what makes a good soil. Jesus says, who hears it and understands. Understands doesn't mean in the, in the Hebrew and in the Greek to just simply comprehend, for it to compute in your brain. Understands means 
I hear the information and there's an embodied response. There's an action according to the information. That is how you know somebody understands. Parents, think about when you talk to your kids. If you're like, don't touch the stove, you will burn themselves. Do you understand? What you do not mean is, did you understand what I just said to you? When you say, do you understand, that means do not touch the stove ever, right? That's understanding, as there's an action implicated in what you're saying. Understanding requires response. And Jesus says, those who hear and understand, respond. Respond with their lives. How? Well, the seed bears fruit. Some more than others, but all bear fruit. And then Jesus drops the mic with this line. Whoever has ears to hear, are you listening? Are you listening? So as a community, we're going to enter into a time of response. And that's the question we're going to ask. Are you listening? What kind of soil are you? Maybe for you, your heart has grown hard, if you're honest. Maybe you've been sensing God's invitation about all kinds of things. And you keep just saying no. Thanks, but no thanks. Brothers and sisters, do not harden your heart any longer. Come to the Lord while it is still day. Come to the Lord while there's still time. God will take the ground you'll give him. So if your heart is hard and you have doubts and you have concerns, but you're like, I'll give you this much, the Lord will take it and he'll do something with it. But you must surrender. You must say yes. There are those of you here who realize your hearts are shallow and disappointment and things not going your way and trials have revealed that. And the invitation for you is, Lord, allow the roots of your word to go down deep. Allow me to look hardship in the face and still trust you anyways. To not... Um, take back control from you, Lord, but to relinquish it to you and to trust you because you alone have the words of eternal life. And maybe your heart's been crowded. Maybe there's a lot of good things in your life, joyous things, things to be excited about, but if you were honest, God's just been on the back burner of your life lately. He's the add-on on top of everything else. And you feel the Lord inviting you to say, to bring him back to the center. To no longer exist out there on the fringe, but that all the decisions you make, all the things that you do, how you live your life would all be filtered through Jesus again. That you would allow the Lord to come into the areas of your heart and weed out the things that are straining and choking out the word so that your heart may flourish in him again. And maybe, maybe you are responsive. Maybe you're the good soil. Then your prayer should be, Lord, more. Oh God, if I'm bearing 30, I want to bear 60. If I'm bearing 60, I want to bear 100. Lord, I want to bear more fruit. And I believe there's an invitation for everybody in here today to say yes to one or more of those things. So here's what we're going to do. The worship team is going to play, and as they do, we're going to respond. And I want to ask you to stand. And in these first few moments, I just want you to ask the Lord a question. And I want you to do this sincerely, not just like sit there quietly and wait for this guy to stop talking. Like, you're here regardless, so you might as well do it. You know what I mean? Like, you might as well at least try. So let's just try. I want you to ask the Lord sincerely, what soil am I? And just pause for a moment. And I want you to pay attention to the thoughts that come across your mind. Just pay attention to them. Chances are those thoughts 
or God coming to you with an invitation? Chances are. So would you do that? Would you ask the Lord, what soil am I? We want to be a people who respond. We do not want our hearts to grow hard. And so here's how we're going to respond. I want you, if you feel the Spirit of God speaking to you about the kind of soil you are, I want you to, we're going to create space up here in the front. And this, this space up here is just an embodied way of saying, Jesus, I hear you, and I want to say yes to what you're doing. And so what you'll do is you'll just come forward, and I want to just ask you to put your hands open like this. It's just a sign and symbol to God saying, I want to receive from you. Lord, I want to hear your word and respond. So whatever soil you find yourself in, here's what I know. The invitation of the Lord is to come. And he will meet you right where you are. So as the team plays, will you respond?